0: Mark, I was rewatching The Wolf of Wall Street just the other day really? and I thought to myself, Yes, wouldn't it be good to make all that money without doing, you know all that bad stuff. Well, it
1: certainly would, Simon, without the bad stuff. Yes. Well, Mark, after the film finished, I hopped onto the internet, as
0: you do, and I found this site called Shopify. Have you heard of Shopify? I think
1: I might have done, but tell me. Well, Shopify is the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, or grow your own business. Yes, I have heard of Shopify. It's the commerce platform revolutionising millions of businesses worldwide. That's right.
0: Whether you're selling Danish pastries or cherry wine, lovely Shopify simplifies selling online and in person so you can successfully
1: grow your business. Full of the industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth, Shopify gives you complete control over your business and your brand without learning new skills in design or coding. And what's lovely about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify will be there
0: to empower you with the confidence and control to take your business to the next level.
1: Sign up for a £1 per month trial period at shopify.co.uk/. Kermode. Hello? Not Mayo, all lowercase. Go to shopify.co.uk slash... Kermode. Take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.co.uk slash Kermode. Something wrong here. Without Mayo. We will... We will... You're doing Queen. I was doing Bohemian Rhapsody... I've got this idea. You weren't for you were a doing song. We were rocky. You. you were going we yeah Yeah, yeah. Rock yeah but we... the film Bohemian Rhapsody oh, I as film. I was then I was then just uncannily yes. recreating the scene in which Brian May goes, I've got this idea for a song in which the audience are part of the song. Mm-hmm. I know, let's try dum dum ch dum chubby dum How about that?
0: Is that gonna work? Well, well done. Thank you, Jim. <laughs> that's very good. I'm just gonna point people in a particular direction that of I've, I've always been a big fan of John have Stewart. We, started? we have, yeah, because okay, yeah, it's, it's all part of the thing. You've always been a big fan of John Stewart. And in fact, he's been a guest on one of the early incarnations of this show because he directed a movie. One of the things that he that's did when he right. came off the Daily Show is he directed a film with, which with, was about electoral nonsense in America. America which is very yeah, which is very right. timely. Anyway, now he's back on The Daily Show and he's doing like one show a week. Does Mondays. So I just watched. I watched him just last night. Right. Okay. Now, the day after. in which case, and I think this was in the same show because these clips came up. He in one show he did one, an incredible fifteen minute about Israel, Palestine, that Gaza. Was, yeah, that was last night, and an obit for his dog. I haven't seen the obit for the okay, dog. Okay, fine. Well, if you if you look for it, you will definitely find it. Right. So, but why it was interesting, just from a you know from a broadcasting point of view, is. The Israel-Palestine section, which, of course, so many people are going to go, I don't think, I don't think. I thought was inspired. Yeah, it's genius. Uh, uh, Genuinely entertaining and funny and also satirical and horrifying. All of those things. And he was totally in charge. Mm -hmm. He also does, I think it's in the same show, a two-minute uh tribute to his dog his family dog right. who had died and he could not do it, oh. it it's the most moving thing okay, it is impossible this. to watch don't certainly don't watch it in company watch it on your own
1: and even if you're not a dog owner uh you will find it unbearable but- where, where do you where do you watch it because i just see it on youtube in which it's cut up so i've seen the opening monologue where do you watch it do you watch it on peacock or something
0: no no it was it was it this is a clip on uh, on Twitter. youtube yeah no, on no, fine okay fine so the the palestine one is long enough that you have to go to youtube 13 to watch minutes it. yeah but but the, the the tribute to his dog is like two and a half minutes so that okay. is uh, that is contained but it is genuine you know, you know how we've struggled in the past you know to read out a, a, yeah. an email but it just is incredible he is such a the king of everything and he's then he has to do this personal thing about his dog who yeah uh, who, who died and he, he, he just can't do it. He has this great section where he said, my dog Managed to do what the Taliban didn't do, and scared Malala. So they have this <laughs> clip where Malala is walking down the corridor. John Stewart's dog comes up, and she's terrified. Of this, <laughs> terrified of this dog, and runs away. The Taliban couldn't do it, but John <laughs> Stewart's dog managed to do it anyway. It's just fantastic, and I would encourage people to to have a look just as uh, to look at both actually, and yeah. just think,
1: okay, this is really class. Work. One of the one of the very few things I miss about uh, not being on Twitter. Oh or X as Elon, dumbass. I don't call it it that. Whatever. um, Is I used to really enjoy Stephen King's tweets about Molly the thing of evil, which is his dog. And he puts these pictures up of Molly the thing of evil, looking like the least evil thing you've ever seen in your entire life. And I kind of felt that I got to know Molly. And now that I'm not on that Twitter... I, I feel that I've I've lost a friend. So uh, what are you reviewing a little later on in this pod? It's a very, very packed show. Is I'm it? going to be reviewing uh, Lisa Frankenstein, yes. uh, Four Daughters, and Dune Part 2, which you may have heard of. Yes, uh, and we'll be speaking to
0: director Denis Villeneuve and composer Hans Zimmer. I don't think I've ever done, in fact, I'm 100% certain I've never done a director-composer combo. Because yeah. we often get director and actor or two actors, but to have a composer and a director together,
1: but it works perfectly, and you'll see why they've been paired uh, a bit later. I li- on. I've listened to the interview, it's a great interview. I'm disappointed that you didn't bring up um, Hans's days in Buggles. I did, but that was earlier. I'll tell you more <laughs> about you, it. Oh, right, uh, did you the... actually? Yes. Oh, great. Uh, I okay, I fine. <laughs> um, in our
0: extra takes section, bonus review of uh, uh, Red, uh, Red Island or Lille. Uh, Rouge Plot Smash that thing One Frame Back is the films of Denis Villeneuve and you should know that you can access all of this nonsense via Apple Podcasts or head to extratakes.com for non-fruit related devices as ever if you are already a vanguardista we salute you
1: I've decided to do that in a, in, um, a late night radio voice
0: we salute you that sounded as though you were trying to be like a psychotic murderer. No, it was a, all right. Gudjian Helderson says, um, <clears throat> says the
1: host of Greatest Hits Radio.
0: Gudjian Helderson says, Dear and uh, Angoa, I'm just going to go for okay. it here. Medium term <laughs> listener since
1: 2015. I always enjoy your Icelandic pronunciation. As
0: a follow up to a previous discussion on bad or at least polarizing food, yes. I thought I'd give you a taste of what we in Iceland have been eating for the past few weeks. My experience of Icelandic food uh, on two visits is that it stinks and is and is awful.
1: And so Stroming is not Icelandic. So, you know, stroming is not it's Swedish. Swedish, right? Anyway. But they're all part of the, the Goodyan, the Great Scandi, the Great project. Scandi Dutch. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly.
0: During the Old Norse month of Thori, which runs from late January to late February, Icelanders toast the old gods in what is called Thorobloat.
1: Not a promising thing. thoroughly title.
0: bloated. A midwinter feast. <laughs> Feasts are held at various times all around the country. Thorough bloat. Yes, let's all celebrate it. It's our new favourite festival. <laughs> During these parties, we drink copious amounts of Brenivin, which is burning wine.
1: Burning As, wine?
0: Yeah, that's what it means. Iceland's signature highly alcoholic beverage. Guests also partake of what is called uh, Podermatur or food. Okay. Actually, it'll be thorough mature. A vast array of preserved food, good and also decidedly not good. The menu is heavy on smoked, salted, dried, pickled and fermented meats. You must have some fermented shark. This is aimed at <laughs> us You must. Now. Sour ram's testicles go nicely with burning wine. Singed sheep's heads are a delicacy, along with pieces of singed sheep's heads pressed into a gelatinous loaf. whale blubber is popular and finally some blood pudding (laughs) this is like where's the worst place Mark could be between January
1: and February this isn't a feast this is the aftermath of a forest fire it's a horror movie (laughs) that's
0: right for those who like their food smoked there is uh, yut or hanged meat, which is a savoury smoked lamb, dried fish is a very popular snack for guests the of all ages. Dried fish is fine, but just to be clear, this is a tradition that we Icelanders hold on to not because all of us love this kind of food. This is more to keep us in touch with our history and the old ways of preserving and storing food. Also, it's a great reason to throw parties. Hello to Jason. Down with extremists! Just to be clear, all Icelanders definitely do not believe in elves. This myth has to be done away with as soon as possible. Uh, uh, Goodian, thank you very much indeed for the email. Genuinely fascinating. I never want to have anything to do with thorough bloat. I appreciate st- you need to stay in touch with your traditions and all that kind of stuff. But um, there wasn't much in your description of what you had to go through
1: that made me think, oh, we must go over between January and February. No, and there was plenty in that that made me think we mustn't go anywhere near it ever. Well, in the it summer. was the gelatinous
0: pressed yeah. head, singed sheep's head pressed into gelatinous loaf <laughs> and fried sour testicles <laughs> yeah that was sour rams testicles which go very nicely with burning burning wine sounds at least mind you alcohol is so expensive in iceland because they tax it out out of all existence that that must be a very expensive period anyway thank you very much correspondence at com. what what is out what's exciting
1: Four Daughters, which is a strange blend of documentary and drama from Tunisian filmmaker Kawa Benanya, who made Beauty and the Dogs and The Man Who Sold His Skin. The latter of those was, I think, nominated for Best International feature. This is nominated for um Best Documentary yes. at the at the Forthcoming Oscars. Let me just check that I am right on that. Yes, it is nominated for Best Documentary at the Forthcoming Oscars, which is happening very soon, and we've got a very special podcast coming up about that, haven't we? I'm just throwing ahead. I yes,
0: think. absolutely. Look out for things dropping. Okay. It's so a French... But not Sarah uh, Rams I don't mean that, that kind of drop, I mean a pod drop.
1: So this is a French-Tunisian-German-Saudi-Arabian co-production, one of César for Best Doc, originally known as uh, uh, Olfa's Daughters. We meet Olfa, who's a Tunisian mother of four daughters, and we learn that at some point, two of those daughters, the older two, disappeared. The film doesn't initially tell us how, but... Many will know the news story of of Hamruni, which made headlines in two thousand and sixteen when she spoke out against the Tunisian authorities for not preventing the uh, radicalization um, by Daesh of her of her two daughters so Although the film withholds this information at the beginning, if you 're going to see the film, the chances are you probably know something about the story. I should say that i didn 't. Because I just I went into it not knowing what it was at all, and then I realized that I had uh, read about this. So the filmmaker asks the family to tell their story, and she brings in actresses to fill the spaces in that story. So there is a combination of drama and documentary. We're gonna play a clip. Obviously, the clip is subtitled, and afterwards I'll tell you what was said in the clip because it is relevant to the rest of the review. Have a look. <laughs>
0: الزوز الصغار أيو تيسير مزلوا عايشين معاها والزوز الكبار رحمة وغفران كلهم ذيب وهو زيدة باش تتعرفوا على الزوز ممثلة اللي باش
1: يمثلوا أخواتكم الكبار إما فما ممثلة باش تعاودك وقتلين شي حوي جزعب عليك تجي مش تعمله هذا هو
0: الجانب الخائط
2: في الشيء اللي بصدق مدام الجروح متاع أكسيون
1: so essentially, just to recap, and you, you saw that with the subtitles, so what, what we hear in that trailer is that um, they are going to bring in two actresses to play the two daughters who we're told have uh, disappeared. Been, and it's how they describe it is devoured by the wolf. Devoured by the wolf. And we are also told that, oh, for the mother, they will, she will play herself, but there will also be an actress who is brought in to play her during scenes which are, which are too disturbing. So it's a very intriguing setup. And... Um, What then happens is that the story is told of this family and we see the two uh, actors working from photographs and, and recollections and the stories that are told by the rest of the family in order to, as I said, fill the absences in that space we see a dramatization of Olfa's loveless marriage, actually very, very oddly amusing recreation of her of her wedding night in which she's not having anything of the husband at all. And there's this whole thing about there having to be a bloodied sheet, you know, in order to prove that the marriage has been consummated. And she arrives at the bloodied sheet by punching him in the mouth. <laughs> so, she, I mean, she, you know, she's a... Yeah, she's she's a force to be reckoned with. We hear about um, another partner. We hear about his abusive relationship with the family. We see the two remaining daughters who are really clearly intelligent, free-thinking, smart, um, you know, very, very imposing people, recollecting how much they loved their sisters and how their sisters became radicalized. And we see reconstructions of an encounter with the police in which, you know, the police are told, look, th- th- these people are being radicalized. You have to do something about it. And the police basically said, well, we can't do anything about it. So on the one hand, it's a kind of heartbreaking story of families being torn apart by hardline religious dogma. And incidentally, I should say that obviously the the dogma here is, you know, Daesh, Islamic State uh, dogma. I saw this, weirdly enough, uh, pretty much back to back with another thing that I saw about the lunatic... uh, Well, actually, weirdly enough, it was the John Stewart thing that you were talking about in which there was that clip of the lunatic Christian nationalist doing the, you know, we want to bring about Armageddon and the the blood will flow right up to the bridles of the horses.
0: I love that uh, hardcore dogma. Yeah,
1: and it's so, you know, let's be honest, hardcore religious lunatic dogma in any form whatsoever. A belief in a specific knowledge of God is a terrible thing, sir. A terrible thing indeed. And... The form is unsettling because you watch it thinking, okay, which bits are dramatized? Which bits are, there's one moment when they're in a certain scene and an actor says, I need to stop. I need to stop. We need to have a discussion about this. What here, no off camera. And you're thinking, is that actually real? Or is that, I was thinking of the, the work of people like, um, you know, there was, there was that, well there's, a, there's, there's several documentary makers who've, br- who've brought in drama, which means you're constantly questioning but I was wondering what is the the role of the dramatization and I think I may not be right this is what I think I think it's to do with uh, the idea that th- that people are always playing roles they're portraying characters they're they're getting into character they are becoming things because one of the things this is about is about people becoming somebody else as a result of a kind of indoctrin- uh, indoctrination. And I was also thinking of if you compare this to, for example, Joshua Oppenheimer's brilliant documentary, The Act of Killing, in which the whole act of restaging trauma, actually acting it out, dramatizing trauma, somehow proves the key to unlocking it. Um, The two daughters who are with Ulfa are a remarkable company. I mean, really, really remarkable company. I I would almost say watch the documentary because a couple of hours spent in their company is is, is worth the price of admission. But this is a very adventurous and uh, I think very ambitious. It doesn't all work, but even when it doesn't work, the uncertainty is, um, I think, is really important. And you do come out of it asking questions about how... These dynamics worked, and how it is that people can be people's minds can be poisoned by such clearly pernicious um, extremist dogma. And it's called Four Daughters. It's called Four Daughters. Okay. I said the original. The original title, um, when, it, when it was originally released, was Ulfa's uh, Daughters, but here it is Four Daughters. And it's up for Best Documentary at the Oscars, uh, which are a, a week Very or Very soon. Yeah. Still to come, Mark's going to be reviewing... Uh, Lisa Frankenstein, which is the new film from screenwriter Diablo Cody, and Dune Part 2. Uh, and because of June Part 2, we
0: will be speaking to Denis Villeneuve and Hans Zimmer. Now, ooh, Denis, ooh, do. wise, wise words in which Mark and I, in alternating weeks, have to guess the artist and terrible song during
1: the break. Okay, So we'll be back before you can say... A Gucci shoe tree, a year's supply of antibiotics, a personally autographed picture of Randy Mantooth and Bob Dylan's new unlisted phone number.
0: Well, hello there. Simon and Mark here to tell you
1: about Indeed. Yes, Indeed is driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you
0: need to hire, then you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data.
1: And if you're busy watching all of this week's film recommendations and you have no time, then you can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster.
0: But Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 75% of employers claim Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other online job
1: sites. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So, the more you use Indeed, the better it gets, like us.
0: Why not join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed
1: to hire great talent fast. Listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo.
0: That's indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Indeed. Mark, I was re-watching The Wolf of Wall Street just the other day. Really? And I thought to myself, yes, wouldn't it be good to make all
1: that money without doing, you know, all that bad stuff. It certainly would, Simon, without the bad stuff. Yes.
0: Well, Mark, after the film finished, I hopped onto the internet, as you do, and I found this site called Shopify. Have you heard of Shopify? I think I might have done, but tell me. Well, Shopify is the
1: all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, or grow your own business. Yes, I have heard of Shopify. It's the commerce platform revolutionising millions of businesses worldwide. That's right.
0: Whether you're selling Danish pastries or cherry wine... Lovely. Shopify simplifies selling online and in-person so you can successfully grow your business. Full
1: of the industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth, Shopify gives you complete control over your business and your brand without learning new skills in design or coding. And what's lovely about
0: Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify will be there to empower you with the confidence and control to take your business to the next level.
1: Sign up for a £1 per month trial period at shopify.co.uk slash kermode hello not mayo all lowercase go to shopify.co.uk
0: slash kermode take your business to the next level today
1: that's shopify.co.uk slash kermode something wrong here without mayo so just a reminder
0: although this is uh, slightly nuts if you're uh vanguardista because you just <laughs> you just heard it you don't
1: need to be reminded but for those who've had
0: some uh, advertising copy Uh,
1: The wise, wise words are... And I'm going to give you the full quote now, okay? Okay. This is going to take about 30 seconds, all right? Go ahead. A Gucci shoe tree, a year's supply of antibiotics, a personally autographed picture of Randy Mantooth and Bob Dylan's new unlisted phone number, Rosemary's Baby, a new Matador, a new Mastodon, a Maverick, a Mustang, a Montego, a Merc Montclair, a Mark IV, a Meteor, a Mercedes, an MG, or a Malibu, or a Moriarty, a Maserati, a Mack truck, a Mazda, a new Monza, or a Moped, a Winnebago. Hell, we're giving away Winnebagos. We've got a herd of them. Or how about a McCulloch chainsaw, a Las Vegas wedding, a Mexican divorce a solid gold karma Sutra coffee pot, or a baby's arm holding an apple.
0: See, the thing is, you, you've changed... So that's a very interesting. I like a list <laughs> song uh, anyway. But the whole point is that it's, they're supposed
1: to be kind of cheesy and, and embarrassing. I know, but I just thought I had so much fun. I've been playing this song over and over again, and I just wanted to just do that. Is it fetus on my breath? No, but, but you're. I suppose generically you're in the right... Go on. It's what do you want from life by the tubes? I, mean, I, had, no, I had no idea. Really? No. So, um,
0: but you really? you have distorted that you, it's supposed to be cheesy and
1: embarrassing
0: lyrics. That's the
1: point of yeah, reading but the them out, not lyrics that you like. The point is, the cheesy ones were at the beginning because it was, you know, a Gucci shoe tree, yeah, <laughs> well, the the a year supply of antibiotics, Bob Dylan's new unlisted phone number. Anyway, what do you want from life? So... Are which we, inspired uh, their live album? What do you want from live? Are we changing the? the so I tell you a brilliant story. No, because we haven't got time. I'll in be this very section. quick. No, you won't. Be I will very, be very, quick. very very quick. We won't be. very Don't quick. touch me there. Which was the tubes? The, the tubes big. You know, Jack Nietzsche hit was co-written by Ron Nagel, the ceramicist Ron Nagel, whom the good lady ceramicist her indoors admires very much. Who was also responsible for the sound effects on the Exorcist. Thank you very much. That was interesting and short. It wasn't, and it, it was. Um, so. I would just
0: say that next week we'll be returning to the origin of this feature, which is to find cheesy and embarrassing lyrics, not just lyrics that you like, which is an (laughs) entire different feature. Anyway, last week, uh, and we have been inundated, uh, because I did a Jermaine Stewart, we don't have to get our clothes off. So here is just a tiny fraction of what we've received. Mark and Simon. This is from Matt and Deb in Macclesfield. My wife is a brewer, of homemade wines. So that's Deb. Oh, right. I'm okay. And I'm guessing you can already see where this is going. Oh, this is... Over the yeah, years, she has made a number of interesting and potent homebrews, including Seville Orange, Pineapple and Parsnip Oloroso Sherry Wine, to name some of the highlights. Not only has she made sweet cherry wine, but I had, in fact, opened a small bottle of said beverage and was happily working my way through it whilst <laughs> listening to your latest podcast. I almost spat out my mouthful of sweet, delicious and quite strong cherry wine when you got to the part about no one drinks cherry cherry wine and we simply had to email in love the show steve extremely long-term listeners matt and debbie macclesfield p.s we can remember listening all the way back to the origin of the dilemma in joke that's how long we've been listening well wow. michael in berlin many years ago i lived on the same street in berlin as uh Lydica, a family distillery founded in 1877 when they were sold and indeed still sell fruit wines including blackberry blueberry and cherry so that's Leidika in Berlin, Richard de Dominic There is
1: literally a slew of these.
0: Richard, Ron, Ron, do 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 da da da. Sorry, de Dominici. Thank you, Richard. I can't believe neither of you have ever been tempted by this popular mainstay of South London newsagents. Uh, Julian Mills Tunbridge Wells via Pembrokeshire but with a heart for Cornwall and Manhattan I was shocked I tell you. Shocked? Shocked to hear your knowledge, of, lack of knowledge on cherry wine. After being introduced to it by my mother I always get a four pack of cherry bee in for Christmas It's not Father beans and a nice Chianti but it hits the spot nicely. Kieran in Bristol. With my wonderful partner slash church sponsor 36 weeks pregnant and considering having your delightful witterings on in the background to assist in trying to create a calm atmosphere when the time arrives I been gearing up for writing in. After weeks of thinking what else I could contribute, Simon suddenly confidently proclaimed none of the listenership (laughs) will have drunk cherry wine. On possibly the first occasion I met said partner's mum and stepdad, the latter told us a hilarious story from his teenage years when he turned up at a house party with nothing but a bottle of cherry wine. He hadn't had it before, as I recall. It was just what he could get at the time. The next day, whilst on a bus, somebody he did not recognise at all said to him, you having a good time last night. <laughs> Needless to say, he could not remember much of the night before and hadn't drunk... Cherry wine in the roughly 50 years since. The minute we were in the car to head home, I turned to my partner and said, that's Derek's birthday present sorted. Uh, He was absolutely delighted with the present, and we tried some as well. I can confirm it is extremely sweet. Effectively a dessert wine. I'm sticking with a fantastic local craft beer. How fantastic to talk about Jermaine Stewart and then get a slew of emails from people... In the process of consuming a non-existent drink.
1: On the basis of those uh, recollections, when he says, you know, we don't have to take our clothes off to have a good time. We could dance and party all night and drink some cherry wine. It sounds to me like they drink some cherry wine and they would end up getting their clothes off and then just not remembering yes. it in the morning.
0: Can you not play with your microphone? Oh, why? Thank you. Sorry. Because it was rumbling. Oh, I'm sorry. Also, FM by Steely Dan. Worry the, bo- Worry the bottle, mama. It's grapefruit wine. Now, that's something I don't want to try. Yeah. How do you... How do you even make grapefruit wine? With grape, uh, fermented grapefruit, I imagine. Duh. I, so, well, you are, so I'm imagining <laughs> okay, that's the answer. Yeah.
1: Right.
0: Uh, box office top ten. Oh, yeah. Uh, from Comscore Movies. We really like Comscore Movies. Thank you, Comscore, for providing us with the top ten.
1: At 46, Memory. Which I think is a very interesting film, great performance by Jessica Chastain. I believe that you interviewed Jessica Chastain for the the finance gambling thing some, a while ago, which, which was up, was a, a, a sort of awards contender and then got overlooked. But her performance in this is is really good. It's a very, very strange drama about two people, both of whom are considered to be unable to run their own lives by those around them. And it's got lots of twists and turns, and I thought it was very well done. Was it Molly's Game? Molly's game. That's right. And number four, the Thing of Evils game. Shoshana. which I think both you and I liked, and we think uh, uh, Michael Winterbottom was talking about it um, very well. And I think the triumph of it is that if you know nothing about the the, the setting and the period and the politics, you can still follow it. But it doesn't ever feel polemical. He kept saying that it was essentially a romance, a yes. romance across political divides. Number thirteen, perfect days, which I liked not quite as much as other people. I know some people have really kind of thought it was it was it was perfect. I thought it was charming. If if not, I mean, it was. Remember, um, Lars von Trier once said this thing about you know. Uh, you, you, you always need the astringency in something, you know, which has got you know, double whipped cream. Anyway, it, it, it's good, and it's got a lovely central performance, but I don't I don't think it's a masterpiece. Kevin420 on YouTube. Uh, uh, is he a bot, do you think? Anyway,
0: a really <laughs> special film, just wonderful, really. Kevin... One of Vendor's greatest and one of my favourites of 2023. Okay, For a film with no plot, it is always involving and touching. Within it, I located the serenity and vibrancy of life, Vendor strives for that anyone can attain with a calm dignity and a steady constitution.
1: Well, that's a very
0: fine review. Andy Oliver, also on YouTube, if you sit through the end credits you will discover the Japanese word komarebi. It roughly translates to The scattered sunlight that filters through a canopy of leaves. A motif that is not only literal in the film, but also, I think, perfectly sums it up. The whole story, like the sunlight, is there, but the viewer will never get to see it or experience it all. This is not a film that will burn you, but you will feel its warmth nevertheless less lesser word than a feeling. Write it down. You'll probably never use it, but it's good to know it
1: exists. There are lovely words in Japanese for which there is no um, English language equivalent. Um, but there is, there is one, I cited it a few weeks ago, which means the anxiety that is created by the knowledge that the universe is endlessly expanding. That sounds like it's going to
0: go into a Monty Python song sung by Eric Idle. <laughs> expanding
1: and expanding, uh, number ten into the ten. Then it's Mean Girls again. Just done very well. So this is now in its uh, in its sixth week in the top ten. Amazing for something that was going to go straight to video. Nine here, 21 in the States. Straight is... to streaming, straight to video was, of course,
0: from the previous straight century. To... I'm sorry. <laughs> a zone of Interest, Matthew Jones in County Westmeath in Ireland. In any great film, the first and last shots tell a complete story when placed side by side. Right. This approach to visual storytelling is exemplified in Jonathan Glazer's much lauded Holocaust drama, The Zone of Interest. We open on Idyll. Rudolf Hirsch, the Auschwitz commandant at the story centre, is flanked by family and facing away from us, a riverside picnic, half-dressed swimmers fresh out of the water, blue sky, golden sunshine. By contrast, we end in oppression. Hirsch stands alone. Instead of an endless sky stretching above him, he is boxed inside and now faces us, staring past the camera. A corridor descending into darkness spotlights his solitude, emphasising his single silhouette in an otherwise empty frame. However you choose to interpret these bookends, this dichotomy is one of the many reasons why Glazer's latest feature has left such a lasting impression on me, compelling me to write
1: into your show for the first time in almost five years. Matthew, thank you. I mean, it's a it's a very fine film. It was a very good interview with Jonathan uh, Glazer. And I thought the most interesting thing about that interview was when he was talking about the... Um, the night vision sequences and the, and the you know the glimmer of I light I need to about. go
0: back actually I didn't think I would want to go back and watch it again but I think In now the knowledge knowing of what those are yes yeah. knowing the night vision and why
1: it was there and who that
0: woman represents uh, seems to be knowledge that you should
1: have before you go agree. see the film number eight here is the iron claw a story of uh, an apparently cursed wrestling family um, uh, it's a true story uh, which I didn't know before with a great performance by Zach Efron but actually a very good performance by the whole cast but I thought it was I thought it was really interesting and I have no interest in resting at all. The iron claw refers to the sort of signature move of the father, but actually really what it's about is the iron claw that the father casts over the whole family and the way in which that then goes through generations.
0: Number seven here and number seven in the States is Wonka starring right, Paul Atreides.
1: Paula yeah, so we are now going to have the interesting thing which is that next week, if Wonka now in its 12th week is at number seven, um, Timothy Chalamet is going to, in an ideal world, um, Wonka would drop down three paces so that Dune Part 2 is number one next week and Wonka is number 10 so that Timothee Chalamet bookends the top ten. That would be nice. Well, we'll see if it happens. Argyle is at six. Which I enjoyed. And yesterday I had yet another conversation with somebody who said, oh, yes, you're the person that liked Argyle. And I said, there are more of us than you think. Well, clearly it's at number six and at number six in the States as well. Madame Webb is at number five. Which is, <laughs> I mean, you know, disappointingly rubbish. I didn't take much pleasure in it being disappointingly rubbish. It was just disappointingly rubbish, but I do think that we have now. This is, there is a kind of end game here, which is, come on, it, it, it now looks like these films are being made by people that just don't care. I don't mean the director and the writer incidentally. I mean the studios and the you know the production line that's that's causing them to carry on. There's no need. There's no need. David from Aberdeen, uh, I
0: decided to take a gamble that the critics and my own initial impressions from the trailer were too harsh. They weren't. So I went to watch Madame Webb. I have to say that, yes, both I and the critics were too harsh. Don't get me wrong, it's not a great movie, Bernie. stretch of the imagination, but it's OK popcorn fodder. Mm-hmm. Main failings are in the writing, the direction and creative decisions, but the main issue is the level of acting from Dakota Johnson and Sidney Sweeney. Mm-hmm. Having seen them act so much better in other projects, it was jarring to see them both essentially phone in performances uh, that flatter a glass, uh, flatter than a glass of soda left to sit for a month. Will I be watching it again? Maybe when this hits a streaming service or a video, I have access to. Uh, but I won't return to my regular world of cine for a second viewing. Thanks again. Uh, for being, you know, entertaining and informative. Okay, that's so interesting because
1: I think that the things that it has going for it are, I think um, Dakota Johnson's performance is actually one of the best things about it. The script is terrible. The script is terrible. Um, the direction—it's hard to know because I get that it looks like a film that's been beaten out of shape in post-production, so it's hard to know what the direction ever looked like. And the special da- effects are terrible.
0: Dan says I am by no means a Madam Web fan. In fact. I'm also exhausted by Sony's lazy filmmaking as a corporate weapon to hold on to rights they no longer respect. However, I have to talk up the comparison to Godzilla Minus One. As great a film as it is, it is not comparable. Japanese wages and conditions in the film industry are so much lower than the US, especially when it comes to special effects studios. It does not change the fact that American budgets are out of control, but we need to find a new argument. Over and out, down with crazy budgets and up with storytelling at the fore okay says Dan Uh, number four is Demon Slayer new entry
1: so I haven't seen this but this is the um, uh, it's a it's a uh, uh, um, uh, animated dark fantasy it is part of the same if you remember I I reviewed some years ago Demon Slayer, uh, Mugen Train, which I really, really enjoyed. Um, I wasn't uh, offered a screening of this, but I actually rather liked the Demon Slayer that I saw. It is, just so, if, for, so you know, it is the um, direct sequel to the third season of the anime television series, as well as its third film adaptation. Okay. Context. that's just a content have they
0: shown it to you then
1: I, I don't know just, it, it, yeah no it, it just may have been that that um that, that, that I was in Berlin it's number two in America it, it is good I, years, so you know, I don't, I don't think it's well. anything to do with it not being a good film migration is at three which we enjoyed although I think that the um the 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 um the weebles what are they called heaven's sake I've gone completely blank what are the things I love more than anything minions minions yes Wow, that was a senior moment. The Minion Short at the beginning is funnier. Uh, Number two
0: is uh, Wicked Little Letters.
1: Hooray, funny swearing by posh people. Laura in Bournemouth.
0: Dear Foxy, asked, and... Oh, I can't say the other one. No, you can't. Uh, notorious... The C word,
1: the B word, the other B word. It's words. a B word, one of the P <laughs> words.
0: Notorious <laughs> flitter between hobbies. Several-time participation award winner and one-time charitable abseiler down the Spinnaker Tower. Okay. Says Laura. I have just been to see Wicked Little Letters, and what a wicked little gem it has proven to be. I will watch absolutely anything Olivia Colman appears in. So after seeing the trailer, I was sold. And as predicted, it's a total delight. Good. Olivia Colman's repressed puritanical airs are pitch perfect and there is no attempt to hide how much fun she and all the rest of the cast are clearly having. This isn't a movie to rock the foundations of feminism and I doubt it will appear on any awards lists, but I laughed all the way through. Timothy Spall, uh, as an overbearing father, is, of course, excellent. And Jessie Buckley brings an intrinsic charisma to her sweary rose, which, as a woman who has been known to turn the air around (laughs) me, a similar shade of blue to that of my hair, I found absolutely refreshing. And Jana Vassan, as a, a woman police officer, Gladys Moss, leads an excellent supporting cast and often through facial expressions alone, acknowledges the baffling nature of small-town England. He does. I truly hope that lots of people go to see this before Dune 2, Sandy Boogaloo to give it there, so that's Laura's new name for it June 2 He's Sandy, Sandy Boogaloo, Boogaloo kicks it off the multiplex screens whatever mood you may happen to be in this film cannot fail to leave you feeling buoyed hello to Jason up with saucy language and love the show Steve uh, Lauren Bournemouth so wicked little letters number two that's a big hit then
1: yeah I'm really pleased because as you probably know there have been some reviews of it that have been very very sniffy there was a there was I think one of the very first reviews that came out was like a one star review in ludicrous yeah absolutely ludicrous because it is funny and I think I think one of the problems is that um, you, you need to see it with an audience because you need to there is something about the audience laughing at the swearing that is just particularly joyous. I mean I laughed all the way through and I thought it were, I thought the performances were good. Angela Vassan is very, very good. Olivia Coleman, obviously Jesse Buckley, but I mean it's just It sort of hits a sweet spot. And what I really love is it's kind of... You know, people talk about the joy of the English language. Stephen Fry talks about the joy of the English language. You know, we all studied Chaucer when we were at school. There is something genuinely, weirdly Chaucerian about the nature of the swearing because it is like somebody swearing in a second language. I thought that was really funny.
0: Okay, and number one here and number one in the States, Bob Marley, One Love.
1: And again, another example of a film that, that was very, very harshly reviewed, at least initially. But it's fine. It's not... I mean, it's not great. There are things wrong with it. It does take the rough edges off the story, which is a shame. I would have liked it to have been slightly less hagiographic, but it's fine. I've seen. T- I tend to think that most of the people who are really slagging it off haven't seen that many pop biopics, because believe me, if like me, you're an absolute aficionado of that genre, it's one of the three star entries. It's fine. Uh, in a moment,
0: June two, Sandy Boogaloo with Denis Villeneuve <laughs> and Hans Zimmer. This episode is brought to you by MUBI, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is
1: always something new to discover such as? Well, such as High and Low, John Galliano, which is the thought-provoking new documentary from Oscar-winner Kevin MacDonald, charting the rise and fall of the fashion designer John Galliano. It's uh, It traces Galliano's working and private life through the decades, candidly investigating his struggles with addiction and the industry pressure he faced along the way. It features conversations with Naomi Campbell, Kate Moss, Penelope Cruz, Charlize Thron, uh, Anna Wintour, and many, many more. And it is showing in UK cinemas from March the 8th.
0: Or you could explore the Women's Cinematographers Film Group, streaming on Mubi in the UK from March the 8th. As women have found more equal footing in the film industries, directors, producers and screenwriters, cinematography remains a stubborn final frontier. Around International Women's Day, Mubi are spotlighting the artistic and
1: technical work of women working behind the camera, including... Including films such as Annette from 2021, Benedetta from the same year and more recently, Passages, all streaming in the UK from March the 8th.
0: You can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash Kermit Mayo. That's Mubi.com slash Kermit and May for a whole month of great cinema for free. This episode is brought to you by the good folks at NordVPN. Mark, would you say that AI has been one of the hot topics of the last 12 months? Or I so?
1: would indeed yes. say that, Simon. We've had uh, writers and actors striking over the potential misuses of AI. We've had many films exploring the topic, including uh, Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part 1 and The Creator among others. We
0: have, and although technological advancements bring with them exciting things, they also open the door
1: to cybercrime. Yes, and with all these technological improvements, cybercrime will become more accessible to the average criminal and will become more frequent. And I've said it once, and I'll say it again, this is why NordVPN is so important. With one click on the NordVPN app, you are protected, meaning that you don't have to be tech-savvy. Their threat protection feature shields your devices from viruses, malicious malware, and phishing sites. Also, one NordVPN account can be used on up to six devices. Plus, you can get access to streaming services in other regions, all for the price of a cup of coffee per month. To get the best available discount
0: off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com slash take. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, and you'll help support our podcast. The link is in the podcast episode description box. (coughs) Now, our guests today are the director, Denis Villeneuve, and the composer, Hans Zimmer. Their latest, eagerly anticipated collaboration is Dune Part 2. It's out now. The film rejoins Timothee Chalamet's Paul Atreides on the desert planet of Arrakis, where he seeks revenge against the people that killed his people, including his father. You'll hear my interview with Denis Villeneuve and Hans Zimmer after this clip from Dune Part 2.
3: Your blood comes from dukes and... Great houses.
2: We don't have that here. Here, we're equal. Men and women alike. What we do, we do for the benefit of all.
1: I'd very much like to be equal to you.
2: Maybe I'll show you the way.
0: And that is a clip from Dune Part 2, and we're very excited to be in the same room as Denis Villeneuve and Hans Zimmer. Gentlemen, nice to see you. Very nice to see you. Just comparing what this feels like for the launch of part two with the launch of part one when we were just coming out of COVID. It was a very different time.
4: It must feel wonderfully releasing, actually. <laughs> Absolutely, because in part one, I, f- uh, I did feel that uh, I was uh, racing with uh, concrete on my feet. You know, it, it, was, the, it was like a um, horrible way to launch a movie. But I, I'm not complaining because the world was suffering, but I'm just saying, as a filmmakers with very difficult times, this time at last we have a almost normal uh, normal release yeah, normal release yeah.
2: yes it was surprisingly c- quite well received for a small independent production <laughs> <isn't> it?
0: <laughs> but it must be frustrating waiting to get this film out because you have
4: been you have oh yes yeah, I was delayed that. yeah but uh, it it uh, it was a small delay not not too long and it gave me the chance to do something that i was not expecting uh, uh, i had a gift which is that we will release the movie in 70mm uh, in IMAX or in a regular 70 millimeter, 70 millimeter format in prints that I had done. I didn't do that in ages, and uh, that's a gift from a uh, Warner I said that uh, was like uh, yeah, a little balm on the way. To, uh, yeah,
0: the gap between one and two is long enough, I think. Um, I, I watched part one the day before I went to see mm-hmm. um, part two, which is what I think most people should do. If they don't, have a, an opportunity to do that. Just introduce us to where we are with part two, Denis.
4: But it's a, it's a simply we 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 catch up the characters where we left them a few hours later, and that that's the that one of the challenge of the, the adaptation was to make sure that uh, if someone would not have seen part one, will still be able to enjoy part two. There's enough clues at the beginning of, of the of the movie to that uh, to so you can understand overall. The, the the background of what happened in part one. I tried to do a little resume at the beginning simply as simply as possible. I love the fact, and I think I've got this right,
0: that you both read Dune as teenagers, like the age of 14, something like that. Is that is that right, Hans? Uh, no,
2: completely. And I think one of the things which, which I truly enjoyed, and Denis will probably say I'm wrong, but is that when we made it, our hearts were like teenagers, except we had the knowledge of experience of having done some work. So we could feel it like the way we felt it when we first read it. But we had the, the mental technology to actually... What did you feel in. when you first read it? It, it was one of my... It, it sort of was... It helped me through a lot of sort of teenage angst problems. You know, the fears, <laughs> the mind killer part. It. it I, I thought it was absolutely... It, it, it was absolutely, as a teenager, it was one of my favorite books. It was one of the most important books. And um, I think we were standing on the Warner Brothers lot when you very quietly said to me, have I ever heard of a book called Dune? And I sort of went, you know, you know like when little dogs get a little mad and they do that thing? I think I scared you a little. <laughs> <laughs> because I was so, I, here's the other thing. I never saw the David Lynch one because as a teenager when i read the book i made a movie in my head and i didn't trust anybody to not disturb those images but when when, when denis said you know have you ever read a book called dune which i knew was not a casual question you know <laughs> i mean this is this is not just a friend this is a this is a man of great vision and i knew that everything that I imagined he would triple. He would, he, you know, he he would be true to what I had in my heart.
0: Did he? Before we actually talk about what we, people will see when they go and see Dude Two, when you were the same age, when you were reading the book, did you feel similarly to, to Hans? How did it make you feel?
4: It felt home. This book felt home. It's like let's uh, say when you read it at uh, at the beginning of your teenage years, uh, and you you follow that this young man that is is uh, uh, trying to to consolidate his own identity and uh, a young man that will uh, a young boy that uh, uh, will finally find home in a a foreign culture is something that absolutely uh, moved me at that time when Paul is lost with his mother in the in the the desert and he said that could be a good place to live I remember (laughs) I, I was like I don't know. I strongly identify not with the messianic part of the character, but with the, that quest for identity and, and that love for how open he was to a, a, someone else called another culture and, and the way Frank Herbert described this culture, the Fremen culture, all the details of it and how it was linked with biology and, and the study of ecosystems, which are topic at the time, the science that I was uh, really interested by. I had, there was a precise moment in my life where I was a crossroad. It was either cinema or biology. <laughs> I chose cinema, obviously, but it's, a, it's, a, it's like um, the study of life is at the, at the center of, of the book, and it's something that I really adore. Interesting that you say about the foreign cultures, because I was
2: grappling with the very same thing. You know, I had come from Germany to England. I was, was grappling with trying to integrate into a foreign culture. Which, by the way, you English did not make easy. Can um, I apologise then? on behalf of well, you're, for- <laughs> you're, you're forgiven, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very much that you know that the finding in yourself a sense of home. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: The, the boy and the man you're talking about, Denis, of course, Paul Atreides, uh, played by Timothy Chalamet, who has grown up. Um, I mean, not that he was. I mean, he looks very boyish, which is obviously yes, 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 part yes. of the uh, part of the charm. But compare where Paul Atreides is, and what Timothy Chalamet has to do in Part Two with where he was in Part One.
4: When Timothy walked on set and on Part One, he, he was like a, a, a very young man. I uh, was alone, twenty-three years old, uh, having to find his way. Uh, trying to to understand how you how he interact, how he protect his creative process in this environment of a huge Hollywood machine. You know, it's like it was like really trying to find his own identity in in and and uh, as an actor, as an artist and and uh it was. I felt a lot of. Um, I was. I was feeling responsible to protect him. And he learned so much uh, during part one. I, I would say uh, from his own words. And and also after he really grew up a lot. And when he walked on the set of part two, he was a total different uh, actor, ma- absolutely confident with another level of a maturity as an artist. And 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 uh, he was a leading man, and and something that embodied also the, the character itself. I mean the, the fact that. Uh, In part two, Paul goes from being a boy to to a leader. Yes, and
0: my son, who's also read all the books, describes him as Space Jesus. Is there any truth? In those two words, in, I was thinking particularly given the challenge that he has to go to go to the other part of the planet, and he doesn't want to go, and he's afraid, you know, be acclaimed the Messiah, and all this. Is the does space Jesus work for you?
4: But in in some ways, you you can say that uh, Jesus is a figure that uh, was misunderstood, <laughs> and 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 that the, the the dogma became bigger than than the message, and that uh, the way his message was used to do war. You you can say. Uh, is like a, a, a man that wanted to do something good that had uh, created hell. It's, yes, like, it's, like, it's like, uh, you can see that this way, yeah. yeah. Hans,
0: what, do you, what did you get first for this? Do you sit down with Denis and talk about where it's going? Do you get sent a screenplay? At what stage do you actually start to make music and compose music?
2: I don't think I ever got a screenplay. <laughs> I, I think I can safely say, you know, one, one of the pleasures I have is that I get to work with my friend and we we speak a lot. We talk a lot about ideas. And it's great that, that Denis lets me into his vision as, as he's speaking. So I try to write as closely as possible from what I understand that um, Denis' you know, Denis's vision for the film is. Then there came a moment of complete madness. I think you agree that we finished the first film and I just carried on writing. Because I, I knew, you know, we we were only at a certain part of the book, so the I, I hate using uh, using that title, but it, it's the right title. The love theme, which is very strong in this movie, was actually written before Denis was shooting the second movie, and I was touring all over Europe, and I would open my set with it, and people didn't know what the what the music was, and I always thought, I, I thought it was actually quite nice that. Eventually, when they saw the movie, it was going to go,
4: that's what that is. But the thing is that I don't share screenplay with Hans because we can see these movies. Okay, when I embarked I, on the journey, the first person I, I, I talked to about uh, this idea of making a Dune adaptation was Hans because we had just had a, a, a very, for me, it was a, had a, an amazing and important uh, experience doing Blade Runner 2049 with Hans. And when I understood what the book meant to him, and I will say that among all the artists I work with, thousands of people in that movie, Hans is the one who has exactly a similar experience as I did with the book, a similar uh, link with the book, relationship, sorry, with the book. And, and by far, the 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 artist that I can have the most profound and deep conversation about the book. So it's like I think for me Dune is like a, a movie that is made by two artists, and and I love the idea that as as I'm uh, uh, I'm writing the screenplay, shooting everything, and is doing the the the, the sound design, uh, the the music design, and that we merge together. And it's like super important because there's a dialogue between the music and the movie that is operated by him being inspired by the image and the book that elevates the the, the movie. It's not, uh, 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 let's say that Hans is not contaminated by, by the screenplay, which is very important. He's inspired by the book and I wanted all my team to always go back to, to the book in a perfect world. I would have rather not having any screenplay to make this book, it would have been impossible to make the, the movie, I mean, but it's, I love the idea that at least with one of my collaborators, I can uh, go, go this way, just read the book and compose music. <laughs> so if you
0: follow that through, are you already composing for the next film? Um, for Gene Messiah, have well, you started on that?
2: <laughs> sort of, I mean, a couple of days ago, Denise on a plane, I'm sending him something, which I was just, I just couldn't stop. And I was sending him something. And I didn't get an answer within five minutes on a 10 minute piece. And I saw so the, the the email boss, oh, don't even bother listening to it. I know it's terrible. Um, You know, and, and, and. I'm paraphrasing now, but you know you. you, you I
4: laugh because I said, "Ants, you get." The, you did I'm in the plane. I didn't have even the time to listen to it, <laughs> because uh, ants. If you you give him a compliment, he he's, yeah 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 yeah. But if you don't say <laughs> no no, no I don't. But it was it was a beaut, It was a stunning piece. It was very strong, and I did, but I, I didn't have the time to listen to it. <laughs>
2: we, we we have we have this. We me, I have this uh, psychological flaw, which is. If he gives me a compliment, I sort of die of embarrassment. But if he doesn't tell me that it's I any good, <laughs> I die of uh, you know. You oh my God, way. I you failed! You I you failed. You, I you, failed you know. So so um, so we have we have figured out our language, I think, by now.
4: Yeah, yeah, and I think that the idea of making a, a third chapter, like uh, that, I always thought that it would make absolute sense once the the, the third book will be done. To have, uh, like Frank Herbert did, an epilogue that gives, like, uh, uh, to see the impact and the consequences of Polatrizi's uh, actions, and I think it will be a quite a, a tragic book, a yes. uh, tragic movie too, and and uh, I'm very inspired by that. I now. mean,
2: uh, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but I mean, when we were doing the first movie, we didn't no- actually know really if we were allowed to do the second movie. No. You know, so. We were all battling in our own way to go and make the second movie. And, you know, I think that was partly why I just didn't stop writing. I just, you know, I just carried on writing. Well, Dune 2 is beautiful. Absolutely stunning piece of
0: work. I loved it very much. And I'm already looking forward to the third. Hans, Denis, thank you very much. For thank, you. thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you. Um, and at that point because I was b- being told to wind up a few minutes before the end right. of, of that but that was them genuinely riffing between each other yeah, and yeah, you yeah, could yeah, see yeah. why they were a great pairing that was when I was able to say to Denis that I thought Arrival was one of my favorite movies fantastic and that Interstellar was one of my favorite soundtracks you know then we were and then we did, Buggles, we did mention Buggles so we did mention
1: Ultravox and it was very funny <laughs> and Hans no he wasn't wearing any socks also Denis Villeneuve must be the only person on earth who refers to that film as Blade Runner 2049 Everyone calls it Blade Runner 2049, but if he calls it Blade Runner 2049, let's change it now. Let's change it now. Let's let's start using the proper thing. So, Dune uh, Part Two. I remember at the end of Dune Part One, you,
0: which you really, really
1: liked, yes, very much, uh, you
0: love you know, very much, and you said, "Well, they've left a lot of work."
1: For I said, they, part "They have two. a mountain to climb because yes. um, if you know the story of Dune, and it was lovely hearing, uh, you know, about them talking about, you know, him saying, I read it as a teenager; it's my favourite book,' and then, you know, then he sidles up and goes." Have you ever read June? And it's not a casual question. It's just like, oh, uh, did you see that um, that thing on the? If Denis never asks you that kind of question, you know it means. You know, here we go. And and as I was saying before. Um, Obviously, the history of Dune, there is a very good documentary called Hodorovsky's Dune, which is all about how the Hodorovsky Dune, which was going to be 14 hours long and star Salvador Dali as a robot, as far as I understand, um, or a a robot of Salvador Dali in order to make it work, um, never got made. And then, of course, David Lynch made uh, his version, which doesn't make any sense and then exists in two different... Anyway, whatever. So the idea that the first Dune worked as well as it did was great, but... The story, the first half of the story, is kind of you know it just it it's got fairly clear lines. You know somebody coming in, and it was very interesting that Denis Villeneuve said in that interview like Timothy Chalamet be, between the two films, but you know kind of comes of age, which yes. of course is the story of a lady man. But the second half is a lot darker. It's a lot more complex. It's a lot more complicated, and it's interesting that that's probably where the wheels come off in the in the David Lynch version. So, firstly you do have to have seen Dune Part 1. There's no excuse for not seeing Dune Part 1. It's widely available on streaming yeah, services. It's on Netflix. Just yeah. watch it. If you're going to see Dune Part 2, see Dune Part 1. And I know that in that interview, Denis Villeneuve said, well, we had to make it so that there was kind of like a recap at the beginning for anyone who hadn't seen the first one. That recap isn't going to explain anything no. at all. It's not a long scroll <laughs> like in Star Wars. No, it's one of those things like, if you remember previously on Twin Peaks, which seemed to be there specifically to confuse the audience. Even if you understood what was going on, once you'd seen the previously on Mm -hmm. Twin Peaks, you thought, I've got no idea. Um, Lynch's version had a visual splendor, but it was in the end thematically empty. It was a film of very memorable interludes, but it didn't have a a through line. And what Villeneuve's Dune proved was that you can do this. Um, But it's very, very complicated to keep these... There is is so many things going on, particularly in the second part, it takes a real storytelling clarity. Now, part one had a real clarity to it. I think what is really impressive about part two is that despite how complex and, you know, like a miasma the plot becomes, Denis Villeneuve, who, as he demonstrated in Arrival, I think one of the reasons that you love Arrival so much, and it's the same reason that I do, is the storytelling is so clear. It's a really interesting story about how you view time, you know, whether you view time as linear or cyclical and it's, you know, how temporality affects your view of fate and, um, and of life and death, which sounds like it's completely. And yet when you watch arrival, it's, mm. it's a really beautiful uh, story. And I think the same is true of Blade Runner 2049. 2049. This, to, I'm so sorry. Blade Runner 2049, which I think Martin Scorsese enjoyed as well. Hmm. So the thing with this is like you said, it is beautiful. But like both Arrival and Blade Runner 2049, the, the visual beauty never obscures what's going on underneath. Sci-fi is a genre in which ideas and wonderment coincide. And sometimes science fiction on screen can just succumb to spectacle. I remember Stephen King saying that there are various levels of horror. And I think it's like, you know, terror, horror, gross out, you know, so it's like you, you aim for one but And in science fiction, it's like ideas are at the top and at the bottom it's, well, a planet blowing up, you know. So if nothing else works, I'll give you a planet or I'll give you a monster or something like that. This has ravishing dunes. I don't know if somebody, people were talking about this. So yeah, they filmed on location. What? In space? No, on location in sand dunes. Um, the worms are breathtaking. I mean, the the idea of the worms is so hard to visualize when you read the books to find, but the worms are absolutely breathtaking. If you've seen the trailers, you you know, th- there's that that shot of them coming to, you know, just coming out of the thing. They are breathtaking. And the worm riding is breathtaking it's as well. Yeah. You actually think that you are watching somebody...
0: Riding a worm. Riding
1: a okay. giant worm, which is, you know, this has gladiatorial fights to the death, but none of that spectacle ever obscures the fact that the story is what's important. Um, Greg Fraser, who shot Dune and Batman and Creator, has talked about the, the, this technique that he uses, which is that you sh- it, the whole thing shot on IMAX, but it's you shoot digital, you shoot on di- you know, IMAX-approved digital cameras, and then you transfer to 35mm and then back, and people say, well, why? And I read an interview with him, and he said, well, when we were doing the tests, film looked too nostalgic and digital looked too crisp. So using this process gives us the best of both worlds. And, okay, it's up to cinematographers to tell me whether, you know, whether there's an easy way of doing this. But what I know is that the end result looks really, really breathtaking. Um, I think when you were talking about the Space Jesus, which is what Child 3 refers to. Child 1. Child 1, I beg your pardon. Space Jesus. Space Jesus. Which does sound as though... Part three is definitely
0: going to be Space Jesus.
1: But it's also, and I don't mean this as a, a, a as a mocking thing, I mean it genuinely, it is Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Because one, not Monty Python, but Monty Python's Life of Brian, because one of the things that's fascinating about it is that as the, you know, Denis Villeneuve was saying, you know, the, the dogma becoming, you know, bigger than the message, and then the, the message is, is, turns into warfare. If you remember the sequence in Life of Brian, when the crowd chased Brian, and one of his shoes falls off and, and John Cleese, but he has left us a sign. It is a shoe. And then somebody else says, no, no, he's left us the gourd. We must follow the gourd. And, and, and suddenly all these kind of, this plethora of ideas come and he's and he's doing all the time, I'm not the Messiah. And there is a kind of, I'm not the Messiah element to the Paul Atreides character which is then sort of overwhelmed by what we are told is predestined fate. And there's a lot of very complicated philosophical stuff here about the idea of prophecy and prophecies being stories and prophecies being stories that are used to control people. And actually, in the context of something we were talking about earlier on, about any kind of um, you know religious fundamentalism and the way in which those ideas can be poisonous, this is a really kind of deep, dark dive descent into all of those things, with giant space worms, ornithopters, um, you know, gladiatorial battles. I and mean, there's one shootout sequence, which is really properly uh, nail-biting stuff. Also, in, in terms of the music, I was told recently, apparently the bagpipes in that first film, they're not bagpipes. Are they? Well, you see a bagpipe on screen. Yeah, you but do. A, apparently, Hans Zimmer did it with electric guitar, much like Big Country did wow. when they were in a big country. But anyway, so... Brilliant to hear that part three is happening, which is June Messiah, which is space Jesus, uh, as you're calling it. And I think that this does have the potential to be like a triptych, like the, like the first three star Wars movies, which people kind of take as as a sort of, you know, the, the Holy Trinity of the star Wars stuff. Um, I really like the, because what happened with the next book is that Herbert was, was, was saying that it's about the consequences of what happens. And, you know, uh, Denis Villeneuve talking about you know it's it's a it's a tragic idea, the, the messianic tragic idea, and we are sort of I think we're definitely set up for that. But I I'm just so impressed that he's managed to keep all those really quite complicated themes going, whilst having all this extraordinary visual spectacle, whilst having moments when you're just looking at it and thinking, I've been transported to another world, and I would say see it in the biggest format you can. Yeah. Did you so, did you feel
0: that? Christopher Walken and Florence Pugh were kind of. So here is
1: my here is my my PS. I think the performances are are very good. I think Zendaya is terrific. I think she's really she is she she actually is the kind of the the center of the drama, and it's a this is a big weight to carry because this is a very very complicated uh, film. I think she's really really great. And Austin Butler, I didn't recognize Austin Butler as Sting. I didn't recognize Austin Butler initially. It was like, oh wow, it's Elvis. I think you're not supposed to know. No, that. but that's it but, could be anybody. But that's great. However, and also, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of Timothy Chalamet. But I, I spent the whole movie not thinking of him as Timothy Chalamet, thinking of him as, as as Paul Atreides. My one quibble would be Christopher Walken plays Christopher Walken. And they, I mean, you do expect him at one point to tell Timothy Chalamet that he's got the watch that his father put up his Jaxie because it's he's doing Christopher Walken. Even the Christopher Walken hair in space mm. is Christopher Walken hair, and it. I think Christopher Walken's great. I think he's really, really good. But but there was something weird about that role. I never thought that that was anything other than Christopher Walken wearing a costume, and I. I have this feeling that if you said to Christopher Walken, so Christopher, tell us about the background to this story, he wouldn't have known anything other than what he was saying. Now, I may be wrong. I may be wrong. But but on screen, I think it is the one jarring note that he appears to have been parachuted in from outside. And of course, it's a, you know, why not cast Christopher Walken? He's great in everything. I think he isn't great in this. And your other point was that you think that... Inevitably, because he and Florence Pugh are, uh, you know, are,
0: are connected. They come they, yeah. you know, they come together that it feels as though they're underused. Yeah. It, you go through the whole of the first film thinking, okay, I was telling Skarsgård, he's clearly the bad guy.
1: Mm-hmm. And then you get to June 2, you go, oh, well, he's not the main bad guy because there's another there's the bad guy behind, behind him. him. Yes. Although I think the difference would be that I think that Florence Pugh is great for the amount that she is used. Mm-hmm. And I think that Christopher Walken isn't. I just think he's. I think he's not very good in it. I, and that is a minor quibble yes. in the worms, the sand, the politics, the religion, the the everything else, the music, the whole experience. My one quibble is Christopher Walken talking. Very good. So, June part
0: two, I'm thinking it's going to be movie of the week, but we'll find out because no one actually knows until Mark says the words. Maybe Mark doesn't know himself. (laughs) I keep banging the microphone, I'm so sorry. You do. Ads in a minute, Mark, but first it's time to step once again with joy in our hearts into the laughter lift. The lift of laughter. Hey. Hey. Mark, Child 3 was pretty angry last week. Right. You remember? I do remember. He was angry about the music being a little too loud. Anyway, he was also (laughs) angry about The Courier. He'd gone to pick up your laptop. laptop. uh, Because you'd forgotten it. And we interrupted his sleep at the ungodly hour of, I don't know, 9.30 or something like that. When I got home that evening, he caused a bit of a scene. He angrily stomped up to our extremely small loft and started playing his bongos very loudly. Did he? It's a little dramatic, if you ask me.
1: But was it a symbolic gesture?
0: Yes, and there were
1: repercussions. (laughs) Hey! <laughs> thank you child three
0: added those. <laughs> a bit of a mixed week with uh, with uh, with you know who i'm afraid the good lady ceramicist here confessed that she broke my favorite lamp i don't think i'll be able to look at her in the same light ever again ouch she got really annoyed with me actually this week why don't you ever do any cooking why don't you cook anything why is it always me so I thought I'd surprise her by making her favourite meal. I looked up the recipe and it said, set the oven to 180 degrees. That was I absolutely mean, useless advice. Now I can't open it because it's facing it's the perfect. wall. Hey, hey.
1: Anyway, Again.
0: back after this, unless you're a Eastern, in which case we have just one question. What did a Swedish company give away in 1962, which has saved millions of lives? ABBA?
3: Hmm. Hey, it's Ben Bailey-Smith here, Substitute Taker, and this episode is brought to you by Better Help. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. If I had an extra hour slotted into my day, I'd actually get through a question, schmeschens. You know, it's, I can never quite fit the extra shows in. We all live busy lives these days, and everything seems to move at 100 miles an hour. So how do we know what to make room for? Like, how do we know what's really important when our lives are happening so quickly? Therapy can help you find what matters to you. And if you know what matters to you, you can do more of it. And isn't that why we're really here? So, If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. With over a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash
1: So, follow The
0: 7 right now. And the answer is the question, Go on. which Swedish, what did did a Swedish give company gave away in 1962 to save millions of lives? The answer is Volvo, although now owned by the Chinese. Volvo gave away the 1962 patent for their revolutionary three-point seatbelt. For free, Niels Bolin, wow. an, engin- an engineer at Volvo, invented the three-point seatbelt in 1959. Volvo amazing. decided that the invention was so significant it had more value as a free life-saving tool than something to profit up from. Wow, isn't that amazing? That is amazing. That's genuinely amazing. Makes you think I'm going to buy a Volvo, although they're owned by the Chinese. So maybe I won't, and they'll because they'll have all my information, and then they'll be able to <laughs> make my car you shut down. You just TikTok it. Okay, I could do that. Anyway, um,
1: so uh, we've already had, I suspect, the movie of the week, but there are other movies that are out this week. For example? For example, uh, Lisa Frankenstein, which is the... uh, Or as my good friend Van Conner, who's a film critic, calls it Jennifer's Warm warm Bodies, which is a very good... uh, Joke. Why is that a very good joke? You shall find out. So this is a horror comedy directed by Zelda Williams, daughter of Robin, from a script by Diablo Cody, who won, I think, a BAFTA and an Oscar for Juno, went on to write Jennifer's Body, young adult, uh, Ricky and the Flash, Tully. She also won a Tony for the Alanis Morissette Broadway musical Jagged Little Pill, which I didn't know. This is set in 1989, and in many ways is kind of homage to the 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 fashions and the music of the 80s teen flicks. Catherine Newton is Lisa Swallows, a high schooler, whose mother was brutally killed by an axe murderer. It's a comedy, though. Now she lives in a new town with her dad and his new partner, Janet, played by College uh, Gino, and her new stepsister, Taffy, played by Lisa Sobrano. And it is not an entirely happy arrangement. How are you liking Brookview so far? It's fine. It's the same as my old school. Are you hot burning now? Come on.
3: Lisa. Lisa! Lisa, 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 Final Michael I don't know what that is. He's the editor-in-chief of The Graph. Lit mag. High school literary magazine. Does he lunch on or off campus? Off. Oh. BK or White Castle? Neither. Does he have more of
1: a basketball bod or a football bod? He doesn't play sports. He's cerebral.
3: He's in a wheelchair.
0: Oh, that's very annoying. Why? Classic mistake. What? Movies, scenes shot in cars, where the driver is spending most of her time looking at the passenger. Nobody does that.
1: Okay, but I, but I think you, you are you are literally going straight to the heart of the periphery.
0: No, it's actually very important. Okay. Well that... I, I'm just taking me out of the moment. Okay, but, you
1: know. so two things. So it must be Gugino. I know, Gugino, I don't know why I said that. And also um, that joke at the end reminded me of the joke in Zoolander when she says, I'm bulimic. He says, you can read minds, which was a very funny joke. So anyway... Um, our hero, Lisa, has got the hots for the literary editor of, uh, of the literary magazine. She's very gothy. She spends her days in the local cemetery talking to a Victorian gravestone. And then following an accident with her sister's tanning bed, yes, really, an awful party, an ill-judged wish, and, uh, and a lightning strike, the inhabitant of the grave, by which she spent so much time, you know, being gothy, is resurrected, looking like a cross between Edward Scissorhands and Edgar Wright, as it turns out. This is Cole Sprouse. He turns up at her house, and initially she's scared, but she hides him in a closet, and then they become best friends. He can't uh, speak, so therefore he is a very good listener. He is missing some body parts, and he's embarrassed about missing the body parts. So with the help of an ax and the tanning bed and some electricity, they set about getting the body parts back. So the reason that Van said it's Jennifer's warm uh, body is because there are echoes, obviously, of warm bodies and life after Beth, the kind of teen-friendly cocktail of, of love and death. Lots of nods to 80s picks like weird science. Um, You know, the teens bring fantasy creation to life by wiring up a computer to a thing and a lightning rod and then something blah, 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 blah. There is a damn it Janet joke uh, from uh, Rocky Horror. Here's the thing. Like the creature at the centre of it, this starts out creaky. It starts out a bit shambling. And uh, that scene that you just saw in which you were complaining about the fact that somebody was looking at the person next to him whilst not looking at him. Yeah, yeah, you're fine. But then, again, like the the creature at the centre of it, it proceeds to find its feet, and indeed its voice. And then it gets a lot more gleefully gory and vengeful than you would expect. It doesn't have the visual panache of Jennifer's body, which was directed by uh, Karen Kassam, which is, I think, a you know a very sort of well-made film. And it does lurch around unevenly, particularly in pacing. There are some times in which you know, just the pacing of certain scenes seems b- b- alarmingly out of step, again, like the monster. But as the thing proceeds, all those ramshackle elements end up kind of adding to its charm. Now, as far as I understand, this hasn't been embraced by the box office uh, in the US and I can't see it being a hit here I think it will struggle to find an audience but if you stumbled across it late at night on a streaming service or if when I was doing the sight and sound video column it was videos back then this had come into my, this would have been film of the week it's a kind of cross between John Hughes comedies and throwback horror bolted together so yes of course it feels like a number of different things sewn together like a tapestry but it's kind of enjoyable and lovable and a bit out there. And it's got that Diablo Cody sort of punky feminist feel, which I really enjoyed. And it's got, it's got a lovely opening sequence, which is kind of very smart, smart use of, um, uh, well, the obvious is like this animation thing, which is really beautiful. It's got very good use of uh, of pop tunes. And I, having started out thinking, I'm not going for this at all. I'm finding this quite hard. I ended up being kind of charmed by it and, and, and enjoying it much more than I thought I was going to. So uh, Lisa Frankenstein, much better than I expected. And uh, really nice to see Diablo Cody, you know, doing something which, because she, you know, she knows her horror inside out. She knows this stuff. She's very funny. She understands how to write this stuff. Go see it. It Go sounds like it's worth it. Worth in. I thought in. so. I, I, I think it won't do well. I, I can't see it setting the charts on fire at all. A quick bit of what's on here. This is where you
0: let us know of anything that is kind of cinematically, vaguely related by recording a voice note yeah. and sending to, sending it to correspondence at kermanemair.com. For example, this. Hi, Simon Mark. We're Hope Productions and we are wondering if you could... Advertise Gogoth's first film festival on Friday the 22nd of March. Uskall Gogos is in Slendidno. It will run from 7pm and our main film is Topcom. Tickets can be found on Eventbrite. Just search for for the first Uskall Gogov film festival. Thank you. So full marks to the young people at that school in Slendidno.com. Uh, for inviting us to their very first ever film festival.
1: And well done for observing your rule but the shorter, the punchier, the better. Well done. That was exactly what we were asking for. Exactly.
0: So if you're anywhere near Thrandado, go and look that up and go and find it and go and support it. And how fantastic for schools... Uh, having a film festival yeah brilliant clearly an inspired teacher
1: somewhere (laughs) somewhere there is Um, there is a captain my captain there isn't there
0: there is Um, before we go Eric Crawford in Massachusetts yes you know this is this is almost like a pause for thought like a thought for the day like a profound moment at the end pause for a course horse okay yes so Eric says, last week, a Vanguard Easter stressed the usefulness of discussing favourite rather than best films. Right, yes. Mark then made a case for The Exorcist being both his favourite, but in a more than one way, also the best of yeah, films. Yeah. So this leads me to share an epistemological shorthand that has been useful to me and might be useful to others of this parish. Okay. Okay? This seems to be obviously true. It's simple. We use the word truth for three very different things. Not doing this and instead adapting names for these buckets of meaning might reduce online flame wars significantly. Truth one, personal truth. This is my favourite city. That is my least favourite food. And may I introduce you to the love of my life? We can agree that arguments of these points are are rather silly. No point. It's just personal truth. Yes. Truth two is arrived at socially Polls, elections, trials, and discussions and arguments in general. Truth three is the high bar, objective truth. Very precise statements such as 11 plus 7 equal 18 require no debate and anyone can reach the same result. Even the most ardently felt personal truths and the most debated social truths never rise to the level of objective truth because something like which film is best is too imprecise yeah. and contains a multitude of other questions in the background. Yes, I hope my three simple buckets terminology
1: personal, social, and objective proves helpful. Yeah, there, there is a there's a fourth truth. Okay, the Kellyanne Conway alternative truth. You. If if only Eric had thought. I mean, Eric is closer to that than than we are. Yes, exactly. so okay. So there's always the alternative truth, but uh, for which, which is derived from alternative facts. Any for sane people living in alternative reality,
0: rational, non-maga person. Yeah. Truth one, truth two, and truth America three. America
1: really is a cesspool, isn't it?
0: Okay, we're going to finish it there. Uh, it's the end of take one. Marks finished it in style this has been a sony music entertainment production this week's team of talent lily team of talent. yes lily gulliver vicky Zaki josh matthias and beth the producer. who made a great film yes michael dale the redact no uh beth made it yes, beth, beth made beth, a great film beth has made a great beth film made a great we film. must tell you about that next yeah. week Are, okay
1: we'll, yeah we'll review it on next week's show
0: okay that's very good producers michael dale the redactor was simon paul mark what is your film of the week dune to- part two Uh, Thank you very much indeed for downloading us. Uh, Take two has also landed loads of extra stuff on there. Take three with you on Wednesday.